Teachers are the latest group to vote to go out on strike. Nurses have themselves announced a new wave of strike action. Meanwhile, trade unionists are in Parliament Square protesting new anti-strike laws as those anti-strike laws are being debated in Parliament. All while Rishi Sunak has potentially just prompted a new constitutional crisis by blocking Scottish gender recognition reforms. It is all happening in British politics today. To discuss it all, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing good. What a, like, meaty show to begin the week with. Trade unionists are currently assembled in Parliament Square to protest the government's proposed minimum service level bill. The bill would make it a legal requirement for unions in sectors including health, education and transport to guarantee a minimum service on strike days. The proposed legislation was debated in Parliament today, and this is how Business Secretary Grant Shapps argued for the change. This government firmly believes the ability to strike is an important element of industrial relations in the UK, is rightly protected by law, and we understand that an element of disruption is likely with any strike. But we also need to maintain a reasonable balance between the ability of workers to strike with the rights of the public who work hard and expect the essential services they pay for to be there when they need them. And we need to be able to have confidence that when strikes occur, people's lives and livelihoods are not put at undue risk. Has been clear from the recent industrial, I'll just make a little bit of progress first, if you don't mind. It's been made become clear from recent industrial action uh, that this isn't always the case, Madam Deputy Speaker. So we need to be, have a safety net in place to ensure the public don't become collateral damage. Right now, right now, up and down the country, households are struggling with the repercussions of high inflation caused by COVID and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And the UK... And the UK isn't alone in feeling the pressure, which is also felt with men, by many other countries, and particularly within the European Union. Recently, the Prime Minister outlined the government's priorities to build a better, more secure, and more prosperous future, one this country and our workforce, public or private, fully deserve. By halving inflation, growing the economy, and getting debt down, we can ensure our vital public services uh, are fit. As the government gets on with these priorities, we also have a duty to protect access to vital public services, which let's not forget the public are paying for through their taxation. Angela Rayner delivered Labour's response. Madam Deputy Speaker, we are in the middle of an economic crisis of the government's making. Working people are facing the largest fall in living standards in a generation. And the Secretary of State keeps shouting Putin, but what about Liz Truss? What about, what about the Conservatives crashing the economy? What about the Conservatives crashing the economy? The Secretary of State forgets the fact that it's inflation that's gone through the roof under their watch 13 years of Conservative failure. And members who are watching this debate and constituents up and down this country know the truth, Madam Deputy Speaker, and they will tell this government what they think come the next general election. But working people are facing the largest fall in living standards in a generation. In work poverty, insecure work and financial insecurity are rampant. Inflation in double digits. 
It's in this context that we've seen the greatest levels of strike disruption in 33 years. Yeah. Ambulance workers taking their first major strike action in decades. The first ever strike in the history of the Royal College of Nursing. Our posties, train drivers, border force, health workers, train cleaners, and even ministers' own officials have all taken action too. Yep. The Prime Minister won't admit it, but this is a crisis, and it's a crisis of their making. Yes. This legislation does nothing to resolve the problems that they have caused. There is nothing common sense about it at all, Madam Deputy Speaker. That was Angela Rayner, I think, rightly pointing out that this legislation seems to be really a distraction from a crisis the Tories made, not really you know, a contribution to trying to resolve anything. Now, one of the main arguments made by the Tory government is that they say minimum service levels are the international norm. Now, this was Shaps again. This was in the comments. The legislation simply brings us into line, as my humble friend and others are just saying, with many other modern European nations, countries like Spain, and Italy and France and Ireland have introduced minimum service levels, which they use in a common sense way to reduce the impact of strikes. The International Labour Organization itself states minimum service levels can be a proportionate way of balancing uh, the right to strike with the need to protect the wider public, and that is what we are doing. Our own unions subscribe to and support the ILO, and that is what we support as well. So that's the argument from the Conservatives. We've heard that a lot. They're saying these are not extreme, these laws we're proposing. These are the norm in many European countries. And also, by the way, the International Labour Organization backs them too. They're saying what we're doing is just putting Britain in line with elsewhere and in international norms. It would be a strong argument, but is it really the case? Earlier today, I spoke to Ewan McGahey, an associate professor in law at King's College who specialises in labour law. Well, it's just not accurate. Uh, so first of all, the International Labour Organization does not uh, support, as Rishi Sunak said, minimum service levels at all. So uh, it's very clear that in international law, there is a positive fundamental right to strike. Uh, that's part of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the post-war, post-fascist uh, universal charter, the Magna Carta of all, uh, that enshrines the right to freedom of association and take collective action. Uh, and again, in an international treaty uh, known as the International Bill of Rights of 1966, there is a right to strike for fair pay. And any deviation from that has to be uh, very, very tightly constrained. Uh, so it, it is possible uh, under international law to have minimum service levels for certain public sector uh, industries. But the International Labour Organization says that they should be collectively agreed uh, with the unions about what, if any, minimum service there is. And if there can't be an agreement, it has to go to an independent body like a court to be determined. Uh, but what the government is proposing to do in its strikes minimum service levels bill is say that Grant Shapps or the government minister can unilaterally determine through what they call a work order what minimum service levels should be provided. Uh, and then they say that uh, if workers don't uh, work as instructed, uh, that they could be sacked or the union could be sued into bankruptcy. Uh, so that's international law, and it's completely uh, at odds with what the government's proposing. The other countries that Rishi Sunak and Grant Shapps have talked about, Italy, Spain, France, Germany, uh, have nothing like the laws that are being proposed. 
France, generally speaking, doesn't allow or doesn't require minimum service levels for industries like teachers, nurses, uh, or transport. Uh, the most that these industries, or workers in these industries, have to do uh, is give 48 hours or a maximum five days notice before going on strike. And, and by the way, all of the countries around Western Europe have higher levels of collective bargaining coverage, uh, better systems for achieving fair pay at work. There are countries that do seem to have more restrictive laws around trade unions in some industries, at least. I think Germany bans civil servants from going on strike in general. The government often talk about blue light services, so emergency services being banned from going on strike in Australia and Canada. I mean, how normal are the idea that you restrict the right to strike in certain key sectors? That's a really good question. So uh, I think there's a lot of countries where you will find, including Britain at the moment, essential security services not uh, being allowed to engage uh, in strike action. So uh, the military and the police are classic examples. Um, and there's obvious sort of safety implications. Prison guards are, are another one uh, where there is sort of a relatively common, not ubiquitous, but a relatively common uh, restriction on the right to take collective action. Now, you mentioned Germany's case with civil servants. I mean, that, that is uh, something that is actually very contested and open to contest. And in Germany, there's a very intensive discussion in the last few years about what to do. But the important thing is that in all cases, in all countries that do have these sorts of restrictions on the right to strike, there are ways to achieve fair pay, for instance, through binding arbitration to set fair levels uh, of pay. Uh, so again, it's completely different to the British tradition. Since 1906, at least, there has been a fundamental right to take collective back action in contemplation or furtherance of a trade dispute. That's the, the golden formula that's been at the heart of the UK system of labour relations. Uh, so what the government is trying to do is uh, put us back to before 1906, uh, back into the depths of the 19th century, in the middle of a strike, which largely it's caused by cutting people's pay in a recession. Yes, yeah, so we've heard that argument before when I had someone from the Fire Brigades Union on, they mentioned, look, maybe in the continent they have these minimum service laws, but they also have a much higher degree of negotiation when it comes to wage setting in the first place. Is that potentially where this debate should go? Should we be saying, well, yes, there's no need for this minimum service law potentially, but also um, why don't we take some of the more positive trade union laws they have in Europe and elsewhere, whereby you have more proactive collective bargaining between employers and em employees? Is, is it time for us to introduce that? Well, absolutely. And there's a great range uh, of options. So, you know, fundamentally, I think that most people would like to see an end to the strikes. And uh, the first way that you do that is you don't cut people's pay. Uh, so uh, the money can come for uh, a pay rise across the public sector from taxing the big energy companies that have caused all of the inflation. So the, the, the health secretary was talking about £20 billion to give everyone in the public sector an inflation-protected pay rise after tax receipts for national insurance, income tax and VAT. Uh, it actually comes to a bit less than £10 billion a year. And that is something that a figure that's dwarfed by the profits of BP and Shell just in 2022. They had around £40 billion worth of profits. Uh, and, and so you, know, you can start by not cutting people's pay. That's going to do a lot for better industrial relations. Second thing that you want to do is you want to have sectoral collective bargaining. So most countries with higher wage levels, lower levels of inequality, higher levels of productivity, ensure that there are fair pay scales right across 
sectors like health, like education, like transport. Uh, and this is done through getting all the employers together and all the unions together in, in that sector and making sure that they come up with an agreement for not just a minimum wage, but fair wages from the bottom to the top. And the third thing that you can do uh, is that you build into the economy uh, systems for collaborative engagement between management and uh, the vast majority of people who work in the industry, the staff, by making sure that they can elect members on the company board of directors. Uh, so the standard in most rich OECD countries is at least uh, electing one third of a company board. Um, it goes up to half uh, in some cases. Uh, and by the way, you know, we have some of this in, in universities in the United Kingdom. It was proposed even in the 1920s by a conservative minister of transport. It's been come back to again and again and again, but uh, Britain has still got this conflictual system of industrial relations. And that is really, I think, at the heart of the cause of the strikes. Low pay, low levels of trust and cooperation, low levels of uh, mutual respect. One might infer from that that they should be having fewer strikes on the continent right now because they've got those collective processes to come to agreements without taking strike action. Is that the case? Are you seeing fewer strikes on the continent right now in the face of the inflation that I mean, we're seeing across the continent? It does depend on the country. So Germany historically has lower levels uh, of strike action than we do. Uh, and you know, we're talking about workers, representatives on company boards. You know, That's one of the main advantages that Germany has always been able to boast over the UK system of industrial relations. You have to look at different countries for a different picture. I mean, everyone probably knows, and it's true, that France has uh, historically high levels of strike action. But guess what? French people also have much higher disposable incomes. They have longer, uh, I beg your pardon, shorter working weeks. So French workers on average work around uh, three hours less than UK full-time workers do. And there's lower levels uh, of inequality. Um, so you know, when we did have much higher union membership in the UK and also higher levels of strike action, there were higher real wages and there was lower inequality. Britain has seen the longest period of wage cuts since the Industrial Revolution, since 2008. So in 2008, of course, there was the global banker crash caused by Goldman Sachs, where Rishi Sunak used to work, JP Morgan, Citigroup, uh, and so on. Uh, and then from 2010, we had the Conservative government driving austerity, driving public sector pay into the ground. Uh, and, and that had a knock-on effect in investment in the private sector. Um, so you know, we just have uh, a lot of things wrong with the UK at the moment. And at the heart of that is our broken labour relations system. That was Ewan McGahey of King's College London speaking to me earlier today. Next story. With no pay deal in sight, this week's nursing strikes are set to go ahead on Wednesday and Thursday. And the Royal College of Nurses have also announced new strike dates for February. It will all be disruptive, even if wholly justified. And two reports over the weekend have given us an idea of who exactly is to blame. The Observer reported this. The Health and Social Care Secretary, Steve Barclay, has privately urged trade unions to help him make the case to the Treasury and Number 10 for extra money for nurses, ambulance workers and other NHS staff in an extraordinary twist to the escalating crisis over health service strikes. A serious cabinet split has opened up, with Barclay now wanting more money for all NHS staff except doctors, while Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, are refusing to budge from their insistence that no more can be offered. 
The Sunday Times more squarely put the responsibility at the feet of Jeremy Hunt. So they wrote this. It is understood that the Treasury has told Steve Barclay to find savings in his health department if he wants to give nurses a pay rise. He has resisted the idea after having to find £250 million to plough into social care to free up hospital beds and ease the accident and emergency crisis. Barclay believes nurses should be an exceptional case, but the Treasury has rebuffed his approach for more money. So they're saying if you want to pay the nurses more, it's going to have to come out of NHS budgets, which seems... I mean, that's not what the nurses are arguing for, for a start. They don't want this money to be coming from the already starved, I suppose, capital spend that we need in the NHS. The Sunday Times go on to cite someone they term a Westminster insider who says this. Last year, he, so this is Jeremy Hunt, argued for more funding for the NHS in his book Zero. Now he has become the Iron Chancellor saying no to everything. There was a period during the pandemic, I think, when Jeremy Hunt was chair of the health select committee where I was like, oh, maybe he's changed. He seems like a reasonable guy. He ran the NHS into the ground when he was running the service, but maybe he's had some radical conversion. Nope, he's back in government. And once again, he is cutting essential services. Once a Tory, always a Tory. According to negotiators for the Unison Trade Union, Steve Barclay was asking them to help persuade Jeremy Hunt to stump up more cash for healthcare staff. Sarah Gordon of Unison said this, he, Barclay, asked for our assistance in making the case about how improving pay and investing in the workforce could lead to greater efficiencies and productivity. He offered to be the advocate for health workers inside the cabinet. My interpretation of what he said was that he was prepared to make the case for us for investment in pay. And the Observer added this context. So they said, Gorton, who has been involved in every pay round on behalf of Unison members in the NHS for the past 20 years, explained that in order to reach deals with Conservative governments, she had found that ministers needed to be able to convince the Treasury that any extra money spent would lead to savings in the medium and longer term. Now, this is a bit odd to me. I'm not sure why funding the NHS properly should be conditional on its saving money in the medium or the longer term. Now, I'd have thought that keeping the nation alive might be worth a bit of extra money in itself. You shouldn't have to say, oh, well, if we spend this money on, on the NHS, that means that ultimately in five years' time, you'll save this money on, on that. Maybe we just should fund the NHS because it's a good thing. We really have to be bean counting all the time. Fund the NHS because we need good healthcare, please. If that means you have to increase taxes on the rich, fantastic, fabulous, let's do that. Let's not say the only reason we'll invest in the, in the health service is if you can construct some argument whereby that saves the treasury money five years or 10 years down the line. It just seems to have all of the priorities backwards. Now, of course, the context of the nurses' strike is an average real terms pay cut of 10% since 2020. And another group of workers who faced real terms pay cuts are teachers. The largest teaching union has now announced they, like the nurses, will be going on strike. Over 90% of teachers in England and Wales voted for strike action on turnouts above 50%, which is the the legal requirement. They'll take part in a mass walkout on February the 1st, followed by six further days of regional action. On Sky News, the Joint General Secretary of the NEU laid out teachers' main concerns. The biggest issue is that there is a workforce crisis in our schools. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of Amanda Spielman, the Chief Inspector of Schools. She wrote in her annual report in December 2022 that um, school leaders are finding it the most difficult thing for them to do is recruit and retain staff. And that uh, this was leading, and these are her words, to a workforce crisis in schools and children were bearing the brunt of that crisis. And 
it's quite interesting. I mean, I can give you all the figures about the number of teachers leaving the profession. I can tell you that um, the government only recruited just over half of its targets for secondary teachers this year, just recruited 61%. Um, so we're, we're nearly 40% short of the target for secondary teachers. But this becomes really apparent because I now have parents writing to me. And last week I had a parent uh, contact me who said, my son is in year 11 doing GCSE chemistry. The three chemistry teachers in the school have left. Since September, he's been using worksheets. He's being taught by cover teachers using work worksheets. How is this preparing him to take a GCSE in chemistry? And, and just uh, yesterday, a parent um, uh, in a primary school, her child is in year four. Uh, her child has had 20 different uh, supply teachers, all doing the best job they can, but no regular teacher since September. And parents up and down the land will be, uh, when I say this, that will you know, many, many, many of them will have had that experience. One in eight maths lessons is now taught by a non-subject specialist. So the other thing that's happening in schools, particularly secondary schools, is that um, there's an army of teachers doing the best job they can, but teaching out of their subject area. In some schools, it's about half the lessons, um, some of the time, when teachers are teaching out of their subject area. And however hard they work, they cannot provide the quality of education that children and young people deserve. Dahlia, that was Mary Boosted. That was before the results of the strike action were announced. But I think the NEU had a pretty decent idea um, that the ballot would go their way. What do you make of this? Is the government going to be worried that so many groups of people are going on strike and that these strikes are really lasting quite a long time? It doesn't seem like workers in the public sector are willing to fold. The government probably anticipate that this is going to happen. And I think that their strategy on how to deal with this is, again, that kind of Thatcherite model of trying to divide and rule workers to try and um, turn the public against workers as if those are separable entities to try and construct this false idea of um, the public whose interests are different to organized workers. What they're getting wrong, though, is that one of the key things that Thatcher did that made her attack on the union so successful and ushered in this you know, shift in the very structure of our economy in a way that deeply weakened labor power, what she did was she essentially gave in to the demands of some unions and stigmatized and islandized other unions, namely the, the NUM, the National Union of Miners. Public sector pay under Margaret Thatcher raised was increased by about 25%. So in a weird way, they're trying to kind of fulfill this like caricature of who they think Thatcher was, but don't are failing to understand that actually Thatcher's strategy was unfortunately for, you know, working class people in this country a lot savvier than theirs and, and really did break the union movement by, by dividing it. But, you know, I mean, when it comes to, again, you know, this concept of not, not so much the surprise, but understanding the relationship between this conservative government and public sector workers, we again have to go back to this fundamental framework, which is that this government, the conservative government, do not believe in the concept of a public sector. Institutions like the NHS, beloved institutions like the NHS, are a thorn in the side of this party. They didn't support the development of 
social housing or the NHS in its inception. And that grudge has continued today. You know, if we look at someone like Jeremy Hunt, you know, this is a man who is responsible for much of the problems that we are seeing in the NHS today. He was health secretary for six years between 2012 and 2018. And this was the period where really a huge amount of the damage that we are now suffering from in the NHS was done. When Hunt took over, I think it was about 95% or 94% of A&E patients were seen within the targeted four hours. By the time Hunt left his post, that fell to 84%, so 10 percentage points. Now it's 70% as a result of the cumulative impact of the changes that he um, introduced. Under Jeremy Hunt, we also saw targets around cancer referrals and waiting times, uh, bed occupancy. All of these targets started to be routinely missed year upon year after having been fulfilled most of the time. So this is really when this kind of systemic expectation of failure in the NHS really began. It was during Hunt's tenure. And it's directly linked to to what he did. You know, we see this steep fall in funding. Before Hunt, we saw funding in the NHS rising by about 6% every year. Under Hunt, that fell to 1%. We also saw the introduction of like very nonsensical and medically illiterate restrictions on things like preventative screenings, um, which end up obviously costing the NHS more further down the line and putting pressure on the NHS further down the line. Because when people have untreated health issues, those health issues become more complex and require more specialist knowledge and resources to effectively treat. Even when you go down to like the built infrastructure of the NHS, like the actual buildings and and infrastructure that makes the NHS happen, the NHS has a £6 billion backlog in essential repairs and maintenance to the built infrastructure of the NHS. And the reason we have that backlog is because when Jeremy Hunt was ransacking those daily bills and the budgets, the NHS was having to turn to their maintenance budgets in order to kind of like cover up for the fact that their basic running costs were no longer being covered. So what I say all that to say, this is a man with nothing but contempt for the NHS. And he's shown that throughout his tenure. Many of the issues that we are suffering from right now is because of a policy and a logic that Jeremy Hunt introduced into our NHS. You know, let's not forget, um, during his tenure as health secretary, that's when we really started to see an escalation of privatisation through the back door. You know, Virgin Care won about £2 billion in contracts during his tenure. So I say this to I say all this to, to basically get across that Jeremy Hunt doesn't believe that the NHS should exist as a socialized public health sector. He doesn't believe it should be a comprehensive thing that everyone uses, rich and poor. If anything, I think that the way that people like Jeremy Hunt see the future of the NHS is essentially very similar to what we see in the US, which is that those who can afford it rely on private health insurance and everyone else uses pr- the public health insur- health coverage, which is obviously of far lower quality because it's only used by, by working class people. Let's go on to our next story. The UK government has announced they will block legislation passed in Scotland to reform gender recognition rules. The bill passed last month would have made it easier for Scottish people to change their legal gender 
But the Tory government are arguing this would affect equalities law throughout the UK, which would mean that Westminster retains the right to block it. Now, announcing the decision, the Scotland Secretary Alistair Jack said this, After thorough and careful consideration of all the relevant advice and the policy implications, I am concerned that this legislation would have an adverse impact on the operation of Great Britain-wide equalities legislation. Transgender people who are going through the process to change their legal sex deserve our respect, support and understanding. My decision today is about the legislation's consequences for the operation of GB-wide equalities protections and other reserved matters. I have not taken this decision lightly. The bill would have a significant impact on, amongst other things, GB-wide equalities matters in Scotland, England and Wales. I have concluded, therefore, that this is the necessary and correct course of action. If the Scottish Government chooses to bring an amended bill back for reconsideration in the Scottish Parliament, I hope we can work together to find a constructive way forward that both respects devolution and the operation of UK Parliament legislation. Significantly, this would be the first time ever that the UK government have used the relevant provision in the 1998 Scotland Act to block a bill passed by Holyrood. So this hasn't happened since devolution. So in 25 years, this hasn't happened. As you'd imagine, in the circumstances, Nicola Sturgeon has reacted strongly. She said this in response to the decision. This is a full frontal attack on our democratically elected Scottish Parliament and its ability to make its own decision on devolved matters. The Scottish government will defend the legislation and stand up for Scotland's parliament. If this Westminster veto succeeds, it will be the first of many. Because we live in like an England-centric, Westminster-centric, you know, entity that the legal mechanism for Westminster to override Scottish, the Scottish government exists, that doesn't mean that it's fair. And it also means that the government can choose whether or not they want to actually use it. And the choice that they've made to use it here is what's important and will have political consequences. To me, that's kind of more important here than the legal argument, as it were, because it's an unfair legal mechanism and the choice to use it was is a choice. It's not sort of legally necessary, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I think that this, this move is obviously devastating first and foremost for for trans people i think it's really important and what this whole thing actually really shows is that the attack on trans people in the uk is led by a very small very loud very institutionalized group of people it's actually not reflective of how many people instinctively feel a few years ago i'm not sure if if you remember, I mean, I'm sure you do remember, Michael, because this is your job, but there was a consultation, a nationwide consultation that the government rolled out to basically get people's views on reforming the GRA, so reforming the Gender Recognition Act, to essentially make it easier for people to change their gender, to change their legal gender. Uh, and 70% of respondents to that consultation argued that the GRA should be reformed in order to legally affirm the autonomy of trans people over their gender identity. So they argued essentially that self-ID, self-identification should be enough to obtain a gender recognition certificate. And so trans people shouldn't have to go through this very invasive, often humiliating, slow, bureaucratic process of getting a medical diagnosis in order to get that, that important gender recognition certificate. When you look in the Scottish Parliament, there was cross-party 
consensus um, for this policy or this uh, for reforming the gender, the GRA. So really, it is a very small, specific group of people that are deeply invested in restricting the rights on rights on trans people. And that's really what this shows is that they couldn't actually do it democratically. So they decided to do it using this kind of like shady legal mechanism that whilst it might be legally sound, I don't know, it's politically very toxic. So obviously, the first victims of this are trans people, particularly in Scotland. But also, you know, it's it's a slap in the face for, for Scottish people as a whole. You know, the question of Scottish independence, the question of Scottish autonomy, and the role of Scotland in this so-called union has been obviously a really hot topic, particularly since the UK Supreme Court basically argued that or affirmed that Scotland couldn't have an independence referendum without seeking the permission of the UK government first, which is, again, very odd because it's like if you want to declare independence from an entity, it doesn't like you shouldn't have to always request. It doesn't seem politically sound to have to request permission from the entity that you're trying to seek independence from to do that. But yeah, so the question is still very alive. We've just come up off the back of um, these meetings between Rishi Sunak and Nicola Sturgeon, where a lot of lip service was paid to this idea of, you know, respecting Scotland's democratic rights and democratic autonomy and working together. Da, da, da. We can now see that all of that is lip service and that actually when it comes to it, the Scottish democratic autonomy does not exist as strongly as Westminster likes to kind of say in order to placate demands or interests in Scottish independence. And so it's it's moments like these that I think, you know, the kind of um, balance of favour for Scottish independence in Scotland varies a lot. At the moment, it's pretty much 50-50. But moments like these are really formative in how people feel about whether or not they want to continue to be part of the UK, especially since the UK left the EU, since Britain has left the EU. And yeah, I just I think it's it's it really is a slap in the face for trans people and it's a slap in the face for Scottish people as a whole. And it makes the kind of like platitudes that that are said, you know, about like working with Scotland and, you know, respecting Scottish democracy, respecting Scottish government come off as like pretty, pretty shallow. I think on the on the principle that Westminster can sort of override laws which impinge on reserved matters. I don't find it particularly outrageous because, I mean, Scotland isn't an independent country. They had a referendum. They voted to remain part of the UK. There's a broader question about whether they should be entitled to have another referendum. But I think as it stands, they're not an independent country, so it's reasonable for there to be some reserved matters. Uh, whether or not this counts as one is beyond my legal knowledge. I do think it is very telling that this has only been invoked once in 25 years, and it was about I mean, what seems like a relatively anodyne law about trans people, which just so happens to be an issue the Tories want to make a wedge issue at the next election. So I don't really have much confidence that this action is being taken by the Tory government for, let's say, genuine reasons and genuine concerns. It seems to me that this is more of a ploy. You sort of mentioned there a little bit about the substance of the issue of the gender recognition reforms. I should say on a previous show, we spoke um, to LGBT activist Katie Montgomery on the significance of the gender recognition reforms. That was on the occasion of those being passed in Holyrood. So when those reforms were passed in Holyrood, which have now been blocked. On the question of whether or not Westminster should have had the right to block this, um, I'm sure we will come back to on the show in future. And I suppose speak to 
We've been meaning for a while to get someone from the SNP so we can sort of have hash out more of these issues of whether or not Westminster should have the right to block anything passed in Scotland. Next story. A serving Metropolitan Police officer has admitted to dozens of sexual assaults carried out against 12 women. PC David Carrick pled guilty to six charges in Southwark Crown Court. These are on top of the 43 charges he admitted to in December last year, taking the total to 49. It can only be reported now for the first time. Over the course of a 20-year career, Carrick carried out 71 serious sexual offences, including 24 rapes. Chief Crown Prosecutor Jaswant Narwal made the statement, or made this statement, after Carrick's final admissions. This is one of the most shocking cases the Crown Prosecution Service has dealt with involving a serving police officer. Anyone hearing of the 49 counts David Carrick has pleaded guilty to against 12 victims would agree the sheer magnitude of his offending is horrifying. Today, the victims who suffered at the hands of David Carrick have finally seen justice. It is their courage in standing up against this heinously abusive man, a police officer, that has helped to secure his conviction, ultimately breaking his power and control over women. Carrick held a role where he was trusted with the responsibility of protecting the public, yet over 17 years in his private life, he did the exact opposite. This is a man who relentlessly degraded, belittled, sexually assaulted, and raped women. As time went on, the severity of his offending intensified as he became emboldened, thinking he would get away with it. The scale of the degradation Carrick subjected his victims to is unlikely anything I've encountered in my 34 years with the Crown Prosecution Service. Carrick's crimes are horrific, but perhaps what's even more shocking is that over the course of his 22 years as a police officer, he was brought to a police attention nine times. You heard that right, nine times, including over allegations of rape and sexual assault. And yet somehow, they failed to act against one of their own. Now, obviously, this is a very disturbing story. We're going to go into some of the details of the case, and there will be descriptions of rape, violence, and sexual assault. David Carrick joined the Metropolitan Police in 2001. Almost immediately, he began using his power as a police officer to prey on women in London and Hertfordshire using his status to win women's trust, and then to silence them after he'd assaulted them. Shilpa Shah is the CPS lawyer who brought or who built the case against Carrick. She told The Guardian this, A large number of these sexual offences were committed within three separate controlling and coercive relationships. Others happened during one-off encounters. It didn't matter to Carrick who the victim was, a new girlfriend, a long-term partner, a school friend, or a stranger. He would still abuse them. Carrick, whose colleagues knew him by the nickname Bastard Dave, stuck to a pattern of abuse in each of the cases brought against him. This is Shilpa Shah again. There were striking similarities between what all the victims were saying. For example, that he would urinate in their mouth, something you wouldn't be able to make up and have a similar account to someone else that specific. He would force them to give him oral sex to the point where they would be gagging. Again, another similar fact between many of the complainants. He would say, you're not allowed to eat today. You can eat tomorrow, for example, or you can eat this much of a piece of apple at this time of day. That kind of behavior of controlling how much they would eat. He would call them fat and lazy. He would tell them when they were allowed to sleep, when they were allowed to get up. 
A couple of the women, he would lock in the understairs cupboard and not give them food, make them clean the house while they were naked. Over the 20 years that Carrick committed these crimes, the Met received several complaints about him. Even before joining the force, a woman complained in 2000, or in the year 2000, that he had sent her malicious communications and burgled her. Then in 2002, during his probation period, he was accused of assaulting and harassing a former partner, including biting her on the shoulder. The police took no action. There was another complaint in 2004, this time a domestic incident. Then in 2009, the Hertfordshire police were called to another domestic incident involving Carrick. By this time, Carrick had been promoted, no longer a bobby on the beat. He now served as a parliamentary and diplomatic protection officer, just like Wayne Cousins, who killed Sarah Everard. Carrick was next investigated in 2016. The Hampshire police investigated him for harassment then. And in 2017, the police were called after he was ejected from a nightclub for being drunk. That same year, Carrick was revetted by the Met and passed. After that, in 2019, a woman alleged that he had grabbed her by the neck. Then, in July 2021, just four months after the murder of Sarah Everard, Carrick was arrested for rape. That was after one of his victims came forward. The Guardian reports this. Her complaint led to Carrick being placed on restricted duties rather than being suspended and having his gun taken away. But she soon withdrew cooperation from the police investigation and within weeks, Carrick's gun was returned and restrictions were lifted. The woman was telling the truth and in December 2022, Carrick admitted attacks on her in a pre-trial hearing. It was only in October 2021 that Carrick was finally charged with rape after yet another of his victims approached the police. She told police Carrick had raped her. She said Carrick had shown her his police warrant card to reassure her and boasted about the powerful friends he'd made through his job. At that point, other women began coming forward, leading to the guilty pleas we are now able to report. After Carrick's admission of guilt, Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner Barbara Gray gave this statement to Sky. This is a matter that we are truly sorry for. We have missed opportunities over time to identify a pattern of abusive behaviour. We're truly sorry for the fact he continued to be a police officer. He abused that power that he had as a police officer um, and used that to control the women who were his victims. And I'm so sorry that that will have prolonged the suffering that those women have had. And I'm in total awe of them coming forward now and seeing him to a successful conviction. It has also now emerged that police failings over the Carrick case were part of the reason that London Mayor Sadiq Khan sacked then-Met Commissioner Cressida Dick back in February last year. Khan released this statement after Carrick's conviction. Londoners will be rightly shocked that this man was able to work for the Met for so long and serious questions must be answered about how he was able to abuse his position as an officer in this horrendous manner. The work to reform the culture and standards of the Met has already started, but more can and must be done, including acting on the findings of the forthcoming Angiolini inquiry. And I will continue to hold the Met to account as they work to implement the reforms needed. The Angiolini report due this summer is the first of two reports following a government-backed inquiry into the Met following the murder of Sarah Everard. It is widely expected to be devastating for the force. I think it's important to begin here by essentially giving credit to a lot of the movements 
like Kill the Bill, Sisters Uncut, and various abolitionist movements that have been organizing and have been protesting around shedding light on what the reality of policing is in this country. Because let's not forget the reason that we have this guilty conviction after 20 years on the force is not because the police woke up one day and decided to take accountability. It's because these movements created the space for understanding and awareness about the violence that is perpetuated within policing. You know, we can't take for granted this idea that the Met Police can be publicly scrutinized like this. You know, typically it has historically had very dire political consequences um, to, to criticize the Met Police, even though it has been politically necessary. You know, I always say when you look at, at Corbynism, which, you know, expanded our imagination on so many different issues and really pushed the boat out um, on so many different things. And yet when it came to policing, it was like the one issue that, you know, it would be political suicide for him to talk about the police in any way other than completely glowing terms. And if anything, Jeremy Corbyn used to talk about, you know, or is the Labour Party of that era used to talk about funding the police even more, let alone talking about, you know, this idea of defunding the police and deciding, you know, where are we actually going to spend these resources in a way that actually reduces harm. And, you know, it's the movements that took to the streets in 2020. It's the people that have been writing and talking about having this critical relationship with the police. You know, they are the ones who created this space for this mainstream reporting on something that has been true for decades. And what has been true for decades is that the police do not protect us from violence. They do not protect us from harm. And despite it being one of their main selling points, they also don't protect women from sexual violence. Um, you know, most women don't report instances of sexual violence to the police because they know that either nothing will happen or if something does happen, they will likely have to go through a very re-traumatizing and ultimately quite useless process in order to actually get what they are told is justice. And, you know, when women also report behaviors to the police that often can precede sexual violence or physical violence, like stalking, for example, there's nothing that the police really will do or be responsive to in that case. So policing as an institution doesn't prevent sexual violence, and it also doesn't provide healing when sexual violence actually occurs. And if anything, as we can see in stories like this one, um, policing and the prison system are actually perpetrators of violence and harm, more often than not, including sexual violence. You know, when you look at prisons, for example, like prisons are a hotbed of sexual violence. You couldn't design a better environment for rampant sexual violence to occur than a prison. You know, think about how many times you've heard jokes about like dropping the soap in prison showers. You know, it's seen as part of the punishment of incarceration. And we don't even know, you know, the ONS doesn't even report figures when it comes to instances of violence or sexual violence from guards to inmates. They only report on inmate against inmate violence, which again is an inevitable part of the way that prisons are, are designed and set up. And, you know, the reason I talk about that, because, you know, obviously you would say, well, none of this sexual violence didn't take place in a prison. But what I'm trying to put across is that the institution of modern policing and incarceration does actually perpetrate more sexual violence than it actually prevents. 
it is embedded in the culture and the logic of policing. And the reason is, is that when you have an institution that is based on incarceration, on punishment, that has state-backed power to mete out violence that cannot be questioned by default, then this is inevitable. You know, it is inevitable that this is how that power is going to be weaponized, especially when that institution exists within a racist and patriarchal society. So not not only is that is that um is that violence inevitable, but the cover-up of that violence is inevitable because it's very difficult for an institution like policing, which relies on unquestioned power to mete out violence, it's very difficult for them to, to both exist as an institution that can do that and also as an institution that is fallible and is up for public scrutiny. Because in a sense, then it's like, well, then their power becomes questionable. And so the covering up is as systemically engendered as the actual violence themselves. And we know this because this man was in the force for 20 years. There were consistent complaints about him. This isn't new. You know, this isn't that there's not only the instance of sexual violence itself, there's the cover up in order to maintain the public function of policing itself. And so, you know, I don't buy into the bad apple question. The whole tree is rotten and it needs to be pulled out and replaced with something radically different if what we actually want to do is reduce harm in society. Let's go to our next story. Nadim Zahawi is currently chairman of the Conservative Party as well as Minister Without Portfolio in Rishi Sunak's government. But just last year, he had a brief stint as Chancellor. And now the former Chancellor has reportedly agreed to pay the taxman several million pounds. That's following an investigation into his financial affairs by the National Crime Agency. Now, there's no suggestion of any law-breaking on Zahawi's part here, but the tax settlement apparently relates to an offshore entity called Balshore Investments, which is registered in Gibraltar. It was used to hold shares in YouGov, which is the polling company that Zahawi co-founded in 2000. Now, last summer, when Zahawi pitched himself as replacement prime minister for Boris Johnson, he gave this interview to Sky's Kay Burley. You or your company, uh, once held £20 million of Hugo shares in a Gibraltar-based company. Uh, what was the reason for using offshore financial structures like this, if not for the purpose of avoiding tax? I was not a beneficiary of um, uh, the uh, Balshaw um, investment that hold, held those uh, shares. Um, and Who was? My family. It's a, it's a public record. Um, uh, my, my father. But, but why would you do that if it wasn't for the purpose of avoiding tax? Because he's, he lives abroad. He doesn't live in the United Kingdom. Okay, two final questions, if I may. Just to clarify, 110%, obviously you're Chancellor, so you know you can't be 110%, but just work with me. Um, there is no way that any funds are being funneled into your parents' accounts or whatever, so to keep your hands clean. Uh, uh, absolutely. So presumably now, if, if Zahawi hadn't benefited from that arrangement, we can assume um, this multi-million pound deal with the Treasury is just a generous donation. You know, there was no benefit, but he's still going to give them a few million pounds. Why? I would assume he must have benefited if now he has to stump up a bunch of cash. Some more details on the case. Balshaw Investments held 20 million pounds worth of shares in YouGov until 2018. That's when they was sold. Zahawi claimed not to have benefited from that sale, but records show that money he owed to YouGov was partly repaid from Balshaw dividends. Zahawi's spokesperson gave this statement to The Independent. 
As he has previously stated, Mr. Zahawi's taxes are properly declared and paid in the UK. He is proud to have built a British business that has become successful around the world. They say they will be properly declared and paid now, but I guess the question is whether they were when Zahawi gave that interview to Kay Burley in the summer. Now, that's a question that tax expert Dan Needle raised last summer when he wrote about the Zahawi case. The Times reported this in December. In July, Needle's website and think tank Tax Policy Associates raised concerns about possible tax avoidance by Nadim Zahawi, now Conservative Party chairman, in relation to YouGov, the polling company he founded. A series of Twitter posts asked questions about shares in YouGov that went to a family trust. Zahawi is consistently denied wrongdoing. The law firm acting for Zahawi, Osborne Clark, then emailed Needle requesting him to retract his claims. Needle, uncowed, published the email. It's a dramatic infringement of freedom of speech, and it also makes it very hard for normal people to hold people to account. It's very worrying, Needle said. Osborne Clark was contacted for comment. Typically, parties that bring slap suits, that strategic lawsuits against public participation, do not intend to win a possible defamation case if it were to go to court. The intention is instead to silence critics by burdening them with excessive legal costs should they choose not to retract their claim and mount a legal defense. So it seems as if you had this activist, this person who was an investigator into tax affairs, who laid this charge against Zahawi. He then had a lawyer try to pressure him into deleting it all. And lo and behold, a few months later, it turns out that Zahawi did actually have to pay HMRC a few million pounds. Zahawi, who is worth £100 million, has form when it comes to accounting errors. This clip is also from that interview with Kay Burley last year. We've talked about this before, but you did um, claim for heating the stables where the horses were. Um, you did pay it back. Um, you said it was a mistake. But is that really the point? It was a mistake because we bought, my wife and I, a, a cottage uh, with a riding school. Uh, there was an electricity meter in the riding school. There was an electricity meter in, in the cottage. Um, I was um, uh, uh, told by the, the, the then chief whip that you, know, you should claim for your, uh, uh, you're allowed to for your basic running costs. Um, it's the right thing to do, even if you don't think um, uh, you need it. Um, I put in the claim, genuine mistake, not realizing that actually, although there was two meters, um, it was coming in on a single bill. Um, when it became public, um, there was, um, a, 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 an investigation, full investigation into this uh, by the parliamentary authorities. They could see it was a genuine mistake. Um, and they agreed with me that it was a complete error, mistake. Um, and of course, I apologized and repaid it. I sympathize with the guy who hasn't accidentally claimed back money for heating their horses' stables and then found that they need to stump up a few million quid to resolve a tax row with HMRC. All very relatable from Nadeem Zahawi, who strikes me as a very um, upstanding businessman who I'm very reassured was for a while the most powerful man um, when it comes to the economy of Britain in his brief stint as chancellor. Final story. In the tiny German hamlet of Lutzerath, a massive protest is taking place. That's because the government there intends to destroy the village in order to extend an already massive coal mine. Thousands of environmental activists converged on the site, including Greta Thunberg, and the police reportedly resorted to violence to clear the protesters' camp. It didn't quite go their way. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
what a joyful clip. Like visual, like it's like ASMR to my ears. Like I'm just going to use it to like send me to sleep. But honestly, like sometimes nature fights back. And like what the irony as well of it being like a climate protest, a climate related protest and like the earth, like rising up and swallowing up cops. It's very poetic. I love it. You know, the the usual slur against environmentalism is the sort of like mud covered people that live in sloshy fields. And, you know, being used to sloshy fields with lots of mud sometimes is useful. For example, if you're up against a group of cops who seemingly struggle with mud. So maybe they should wear that with pride next time they're called muddy eco warriors. Dahlia, pleasure being joined by you this evening. Lovely to see you this fine Monday evening. Um, thank you so much for watching tonight's show. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.